Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I am joined again by Melissa Davis. And actually, I wanted to ask Melissa, do you prefer Mel or Melissa? Because I've seen both and I wasn't <laughs> sure. Uh, I, I'm good with either, actually. It's like the people that I've mess- met in the last 10 years usually call me Mel. Okay. Before that, Melissa, before that, Melly, so... Melly, oh, I've not heard that one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that one I don't. don't <laughs> yeah, I <bet>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I should call you Mel, really, because I, I we've definitely met in the last ten years. So <laughs> I'll call you Mel from here on out. And Mel Sounds was good. last back on the show, episode one hundred sixty nine, which is a while ago now. And we talked about kind of habit formation for the most part mm-hmm. within that. And you've been busy, hard at work. And for those who don't know, Mel has a PhD in neurobiology and behavior um, and has 10 years of research experience as well. And she's been working hard on this book called The Evidence-Based uh, Habit Building. I, that's essentially what the book is about. And I love the kind of take home. You said the purpose of the book is to help you develop goal-directed habits, the holy grail of behavior change. And uh, I think... The probably the, hopefully the listeners are well aware of how important habits can and they kind of know the saying habits can make or break you so uh, I think this book and I've been digging into it myself and I can't say I've read the whole thing now I've actually got about halfway through but it's just it's, it's fascinating the, the amount of uh, kind of references in there and the fact that I can even go and look it up was really really cool because there's some really interesting stuff particularly for coaches because a lot of like the most successful people in bodybuilding or whatever sport it is it's it's based off habit so uh, there was something I wanted to start with and that was basically talking about willpower because I think Mm -hmm. again a lot of the listeners will be aware of kind of what willpower is and I don't know if they know kind of the research behind it and the fact it's kind of hotly debated a little bit and I know you have your own take on it so I don't know if you want to start off off with like a definition of what willpower is and yeah definitely uh, dig into it from there yeah, so for a very long time, uh, willpower is basically uh, self-control is a pretty good analogy, just the ability to control your behavior against instincts or habits or things like that. Um, for a long time, what dominated the research understanding was that willpower was this finite resource. And I think that's still really common in, in sort of Instagram posts and things like that. You know, you'll, you'll run out of willpower if you use too much. And that seems to actually not be the case. Uh there are plenty of studies that that sort of demonstrate it pretty convincingly. A lot of people are familiar with the radish and cookie experiment. And just in case you're not, I'll, I'll tell that I'll run that down really quickly. They brought people into a room who volunteered to be subjects in this experiment, but they didn't really know what the experiment was about. And the room just smelled like delicious cookies, right? One group was given instructions to eat the cookies. There are cookies sitting out and there's also radishes. And they said, ignore the radishes, eat the cookies. The other group, they were told to, you know, smell and drool and look at the cookies, but eat only the radishes. And after an hour of this, um, each group was made to do a series of tests and puzzles that were pretty much unsolvable. And what they're actually measuring was how long would they spend on the puzzle? So the idea was that if you depleted this finite willpower resource by abstaining from cookies, you wouldn't have much left in you to work on the puzzles. And they found that the, the people who had abstained spent less time on the puzzles and the people who got to eat cookies. But later research showed that if you added a motivational aspect, people's willpower would resume. So if you said, okay, now we're going to give you five bucks to finish this puzzle, then people would, you know, suddenly find more willpower. So it's less likely that it's actually finite. And I think one of the best descriptions of it that I've heard in the literature is that it's like an emotion 
So you don't run out of sadness. You don't run out of joy, right? You don't run out of willpower. It just ebbs and flows depending on situations and contexts. I know, I know you said, um, or you were talking about kind of one of the hypotheses was like it was glucose dependent because right, yeah. it was like based off the brain and you kind of you went through it and kind of just falsified how that did. it doesn't make yeah. any sense so you can just eat more kind of carbs and you're gonna just infinite amounts of willpower <laughs> right right and it's i mean it sounds kind of intuitive right like what would you use up what does the brain use as its primary source of energy glucose but the thing is other studies have shown that no matter how hard you're working on a task, your brain sort of uses the same amount of glucose. It's a very regulated um, molecule in the brain. And I know you said like the, the reason you introduced willpower was kind of a lot of people thought, and that was part of like, I think a lot of people would be aware of like the marshmallow experiment where the children mm. were kind of sat in front of these marshmallows. You can have more if you kind of stay here for longer and right. don't eat them. Uh, but it was kind of demonstrated that, it was a sense of the, the children who successfully stayed away from marshmallows would be more successful in the future. And it was kind of, that was also found not to be true, correct? Yeah, so it was true in that, that those two things did correlate. But as we all know, correlation does not equal causation. And when they kind of dug into some of the other variables, there were a lot of variables that much more strongly predicted success or lack thereof. Um, one of the things they found was that poverty tends to increase your... Uh, instant gratification urges. And that's not actually a bad or illogical thing. A lot of the kids coming from that background, you know, they don't trust that things that are promised will come because that's been their experience. So they're actually making a calculated decision to eat the one marshmallow that's guaranteed now instead of gambling on those later marshmallows, right? So there's a lot more that goes into that. And the sort of take home there is that your self-control is not set. So if you feel like you don't have a lot, you can alter it, you can improve it. So you're not you're not stuck with your self-control genetics. And one of the kind of, uh, my take home from it at least was where you're essentially saying you weren't particularly worried about kind of someone's willpower necessarily because you just thought habits are, are superior. Right. right, you need, obviously you need a modicum of willpower and self-control to start a habit change program. But in the end, building goal-directed habits can take all of the pressure off willpower and just make getting what you want sort of an automatic part of your behavior. I know one of the things you said was really important, like it, and within the book, there's lots of detail like goal setting. Mm -hmm. And uh, you talked about kind of self-efficacy and why that is important. I'd love to hear a bit more about that. Yeah, I think that's one of the, the most sort of both underappreciated aspects of working on behavior change. And uh, one of the things that people tend to do the most poorly. So I'm talking about choosing a goal that's appropriate and then also making your sort of milestone steps towards an overall goal achievable and smaller so that you get the self-efficacy. So just to go into a little more detail, self-efficacy is very predictive of success. So if you feel good about your capacity to change, you're more likely to be able to change. And one of the ways you can facilitate that is to make smaller goals and be successful at them rather than making too large of a goal and falling short and then even though you've made progress you feel bad about yourself because you missed the target yeah i think that's something a lot of people 
don't yeah they they don't set those small landmarks and then they do just get disappointed and it's that whole kind of you mess up one day on your diet and you just fall off right. whereas it's like i don't know what else did you succeed upon this day and you know maybe on, on average for the week you can be pretty much in the direction of your goal and it can be so easy for people just to kind of they, they don't they're kind of self-defeatist like mind right. uh, body follows mind almost and they don't set yeah. themselves up from success from the get-go. And that's not to say that challenging goals aren't a good idea. In fact, the research suggests that if you have some knowledge and background in what you're trying to achieve, so you're not a total noob at it, making a challenging goal is actually better because if you make the goal too small, it, it doesn't feel like, if you feel like you can put it off, it doesn't feel like a big success. You don't have as much motivation for it. But yeah, like you said, having, even if your goal is big and challenging in an arena that you're familiar with, having those milestones set up to celebrate on the way is really important because very often a challenging outcome is months or years away and you need something to sort of fuel your continued work as you go. Yeah. I really like that from a coaching perspective when I was thinking about it in that like clients oftentimes won't celebrate like their wins and their focus on maybe the negatives and you can yeah. celebrate that with them. And then also like in the experience and you laid it out in terms of experience and kind of goal setting as a coach, you can look at the client's experience and not be like, okay, so you know, no idea what macros are or what these things are. So right. yeah, we can start with where you at rather than kind of giving you way too much to try and do. And then you just fall flat yeah. on your face. Which is very tempting. I mean, even if I look back to my early days of coaching, you, you learn how to do everything optimally, right? And you know, all of these details and you, you want to give it to your client and allow them to have perfect results, but you really have to consider their position in that arena. It's, it's going to be too big of a leap for someone, like you said, totally new to macros and calories to start lifting six days a week and having, you know, perfectly timed meals with exact macro amounts. So you have to take people's position into consideration. And on that note, beginners actually do better with learning goals. So that can be really frustrating to talk a client into. But if you have a super new client, it can be a good idea to say, hey, let's spend three weeks just learning about macros and learning how to meal prep. Then we'll move into the weight loss or whatever the plan is. Yeah, I guess that could be as simple as like use my fitness pal or whatever it might be a, a various app and just track what you eat normally and like learn yeah. about the, the macros. Just get an idea. Exactly. Yeah. It maybe no, tends like to that. make people much more successful. Yeah, that's Sometimes you have to talk them, fight them for it though. <laughs> yeah. People like to get going on progress. Everyone, that's the trouble. I think just generally everyone wants to be more advanced than they are and they think advanced is better, whereas actually right. it's like they're the painful things the advanced person has to do to see anything happen. Right, exactly. <laughs> you don't need it. <laughs> and I really like the discussion between kind of motivation and the intrinsic and extrinsic goals because I think a lot mm -hmm. like it's so applicable to fitness. So I'd love you to kind of expand on that as well. Yeah, absolutely. That research is really interesting to me. So basically intrinsic goals are goals or motivations that come from your internal values or like personal passions. Whereas extrinsic motivations or goals are based on, you know, social acceptance, it's an external reward like money or avoidance of shame or different things like that. And the latter tend to be less correlated with actual success unless they're coupled with an intrinsic motivation. So one of my favorite studies that sort of demonstrates that nicely is uh, there's a daycare center and I'm not sure how they collected the data for this, but the daycare center was having trouble with parents being late picking up their kids. And they thought, you know what, we're gonna impose a fee on these parents so they have to pay us extra when they pick their children up late. They imposed that and suddenly the parents picked up their children even later. 
So tardiness increased and sort of the, the breakdown, the researchers looked at this were like, well, you took away the intrinsic drive to be a good person and show up on time. You know, you still had some people failing, but they had that drive, that intrinsic drive. And you gave them a way to, you gave them an external motivation or a way to relieve that intrinsic drive. Well, I was late, but I paid my fee, so I don't have to feel like a bad person. So you can see kind of where the, the intrinsic drive is a stronger drive. It's, it's just a nice uh, illustration. There's plenty of studies that demonstrate it, but I just think that one's a really nice one to, to typify what happens. Yeah, it's crazy. It's kind of like now they almost don't feel bad because I don't know right. that they're, they're paying their dues now in a different way. Exactly. So it, it, it means that turning up is fine. Um, but oftentimes like the, it's not just like, like, it's funny that even just money. And I think a lot of daycare, apparently I was talking to my girlfriend about it and daycare centers and like these places actually use this approach quite often. And yeah. seemingly it's still like based off research still isn't <laughs> going to be working very well for people. It often takes a long time for basic research to trickle into practice and law. Yeah. And something else that was really interesting was and again this is an area where people don't often consider it is the trade-offs and you mentioned that like a lot of people don't talk about trade-offs and when they're goal setting they're just like they just think of something and it's, maybe it's pie in the sky and they don't think about what actually would take to, to get to that given. goal yeah absolutely i like to think about it in terms kind of mrv like a lot of people do the same thing with training right they're just like i want to run a marathon and i want to like increase my powerlifting total and i want to do they have all these sort of contradicting goals. And I think they can just keep adding training on and continue to be successful. But it's sort of a similar thing with goal setting. You are going to trade something for everything you add, something has to be traded off because you only have, you have a limited capacity to wake and doing things and making change. Yeah. And I know you, you talked about kind of, I think at least the, the listeners will know kind of Mr. Olympia and being like Ronnie Coleman or something. And a lot of them people will look up to that person and he will have had to have made, and I mean, you look at him now, he's clearly made some trade-offs. Maybe some of them arguably could be avoided, but right. he still made those choices and decisions. Whereas Absolutely. Yeah. someone might not consider that they're doing that to themselves when they're right. going to the goal. Yeah. Especially people when you're coaching people and they're a little bit new to fitness and most of their exposure is going to be these Instagram snapshots, right? Of these gloriously fit people and they don't have, and that's sort of back to the the learning goals for new people is they need to learn about the trade-offs before they set their goals because they don't realize what does it take for a female to keep year-round abs. You're going to lose about a lot of fun things in life if that's your goal. And that's okay if that's the most important thing to you, but you really have to decide whether it is. Yeah. I think that's uh, particularly when you're setting someone up, especially a female for like contest prep and you consider that I think a lot of females unfortunately aren't aware of the implications for menstrual cycle and oh, the yeah. fact that yeah. if like if they they probably have to get below a certain amount of energy intake that's going to lead to loss of menstrual cycle and then mm -hmm. the, the journey afterwards as well and that's kind of like it's scary to think people get into such decisions without knowing without beforehand Absolutely. yeah and the basically the takeaway I, I saw from that and I thought was great is just make sure the sacrifices are worth it because you'll be right. in too deep <laughs> and then you'll be and like... And as a coach, also just imposing the idea that there's not a right answer. If you, if, you know, going out on Friday and Saturday with your friends and having food and drinks is a, an important part of your life, that doesn't make you a bad person. You can still get a little more fit, a little more healthy, but you might not be able to do the year-round ads or contest prep and keep that in your life. And it's there's nothing wrong with either choice. You just really have to look inside and figure out what which direction you're most pulled. 
Hey, Pascal here. I just wanted to take the moment to talk about our membership site. Inside, you'll find a thriving forum, an extensive exercise library, courses, presentations, and research reviews. All I need you to do is hit the link in the description below and sign up. Yeah, I think that can be really hard for a lot of people, especially when they know like what's optimal and then they're like, I kind of want to choose this, but do I? And like, what do uh, I want to get these things up? Yeah, yeah it's a real, yeah. really challenge. Even I find, like, at times, I want to be that person that's just always there. And then sometimes I'm like, but do I really want to go all the way there? Is it is it worth it? Right. And, <laughs> yeah, it's only you can come to that decision, I guess, or you can talk to a coach Absolutely, about it yeah. who you trust. They can help you too. Yeah. And. In the book, you also talked about kind of, well, you talked there even about kind of making sure you pick kind of one goal, like you can't just go for fat loss and muscle gain and like like cardiovascular goals and everything at once. You talked to kind of laying out a plan and periodizing it. Right. Again, very similar to, to sort of sport training. If you are looking to get leaner, but also gain more muscle, you have to pick one at a time. If you're looking to make a bunch of changes in your life, sometimes you can't fit all of the, the work that that's going to take in at once. So you periodize it, do the most important one first, when that's a nice solidified habit, then you're sort of clear to move on to the next one without there being any complications. And you also mentioned a nice way to kind of get a new habit in is almost combining it with other ones, or I guess maybe replacing it. Yeah, yeah. I think that probably the easiest way to get rid of an unwanted habit is to replace it with something neutral or something beneficial. So just a really silly example, if you are someone who's trying to cut out drinking on weeknights so that you can get a little more fit and work on that a little bit more, maybe you replace your nightly wine habit with a nightly tea habit. You find some really delicious teas that you love, and then you sort of have some of the aspects of your habit that were rewarding to you. You sit down with a cup of something to drink that you enjoy. It might not be as great as wine, but it's not as bad as not having anything to drink when you sit down on the couch at night, right? So that can be, it can be really helpful to, to replace or to put your sort of habits that are getting in the way, bundle them with something productive. So if you're finding you're watching too much Netflix, tell yourself you can only watch Netflix on the treadmill if one of your other goals is to lose a little weight and you're trying to up your calorie burn. And that sort of both encourages the positive behavior and makes your unwanted behavior okay in that context because it's not preventing any other activities. I really love those examples as well because it's just it makes it really easy to kind of just yeah. implement, especially within like health and fitness. I always think about it trying to reduce like caffeine intake, replacing like your monster with like a seven up or something, and right. then replacing <laughs> so the coffee with decaf. Somewhat, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's somewhat there, uh, yeah, it's never quite the same, but at least it's it's something and it definitely helps. Uh, yeah. I, I find I don't know if you've seen this FML with your because uh, I know you coach a lot of people chewing gum. Is that something you've ever come across the clients that they just end up having tons of chewing gum? I do that myself. When I've <laughs> done a hard diet the last couple of weeks, there's a lot of chewing gum happening just because the having a flavor and something to chew is close enough to eating when you're that yeah. desperate. That can, it can be really helpful. Yeah, I think I, it's a great option. I guess, yeah, I was just thinking, it's, I, sometimes it gets to a point where the client wants to get out of that habit. Quite often, I, right. I found at least, <laughs> when you just start eating more, it kind of dissipates itself. I get yeah. to a point where I'm like, I used to chew gum all the time. Why, why don't yeah, I it's anymore? It's not nearly as desirable when you're eating actual food. <laughs> no, absolutely. Cool. Um, so something I found really interesting, and I find this just, it's a topic that's been growing over time uh, over the last few years is mindfulness. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about how that relates to habits and goals and 
what we might be able to do to improve upon it. Yeah, absolutely. I've had a lot of people say, I wasn't expecting to find a, a chapter on meditation in your habit building book. Um, some people were sort of troubled by that. Others were excited. But yeah, it's, it sounds very hippie and very silly. But the take home is sort of you can't change your behavior if you're not noticing and paying attention to your behavior. Right. And the problem with habits is that they're automatic. There's a trigger or a context that sets them off, and then you behave in that way without thinking about it. And one of the silly examples I have in the book is just sort of demonstrate how mindless habits can be. And this is a really small and silly habit, but if you have a toilet at home that has a side flush and you go stay in a hotel and the toilet has a top flush, I guarantee you for several days, even though you've experienced the fact that it's a top flush, you'll keep reaching for that side flush. It's just an automatic thing. You don't think about it. And taking out the automaticity of habits is what really allows you to break them down and make a conscious decision. And in order to do that, you really have to be attentive and aware of your behavior and aware of what you're doing. And very often even aware of sort of the emotions and, and triggers and things that, that push you towards a behavior in order to take it apart, break it down and change it. So mindfulness is a really good way to start that. Mindfulness has been arguably overhyped a little bit just because there's so many studies showing just amazing changes and then another study will do the same and won't see that. And I think that the problem is mindfulness is a very, it's a hard thing to quantify, right? How do you quantify how mindful a person is being? You can give them exercises, but you can't really look at what's in their mind. So I think mindfulness by itself is probably good, but isn't going to be a game changer. Mindfulness in the context of a full behavior change plan, on the other hand, can be incredibly useful in helping you do, as I said, break down your habits, notice what you're doing and understand why you do the things you do and when you do them. Yeah, I think especially, I I don't know if this is why it's become particularly popular, but in our day and age where like you just, I don't know, I check my phone way too many times every day and that (laughs) certainly doesn't feel like that's a mindful thing to do. So even like going for a walk and I I think normally when I go for a walk, I'm listening to something or I'm like on WhatsApp or I'm looking at reels on my phone just now that (laughs) they're addictive. Whereas simply just going for a walk and you kind of talk about going for a walk and just listening to what's going on. And you had some other ones like breathing, concentration. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you want to dig into some of those. Sure. Yeah. So there's mindfulness can be done in in so many different ways. The, The goal really is to spend a little bit of time each day, just being completely attentive to that moment, not thinking about what happened yesterday, not planning what you're going to do tomorrow, not absorbed in something on your phone or on TV, but just being aware, how does your body feel? What do you see? What do you hear? Just every aspect of the present moment. It sounds hippie and silly, but starting to do that once a day for a few minutes can really bleed into other parts of your life. And you'll find you start noticing things about how you feel and what you see a little bit more over time as you practice. And that's what can be really useful. So it doesn't really matter if you go to like you know, a Zen meditation camp, or you see a cognitive behavioral therapist who does mindfulness practice, or you just, you know, download an app and do some breathing exercises. I don't think that any one of those is better or worse. Um, There does seem to be some evidence that having a guide or someone to help you is really useful, but that can often be found in an app as well, because there'll often be a voice guiding you through the meditation. Do you have any apps? Like, do you have a favorite? Do you use any yourself? I do actually, James and I, Dr. James and I both use the waking up app, which is done by Sam Harris, who's, 
He's also a neurobiologist. He also does jujitsu and he does mindfulness. <laughs> I want to be his friend, but his app is great. I, um, I have some Zen training history myself. I did Zen meditation for about seven years with an actual priest when I was in my twenties. And so I found, I sort of just stopped for a long time and I wanted to get back into it. And I found his app. I tried a few others before, but I found his to be really, really easy onboarding, really easy to understand. He eases you into the ideas and like starts slow with just a couple minute chunks of meditation. Um, and it's been, it's been awesome. We, James and I have both been enjoying it a lot. I know James is obviously the recovery guy and yeah. uh, meditation <laughs> seems to be promote, can, can promote recovery and like just being calm. So I think yeah, he's spoken absolutely. about, do you do it like post-workout pre-bed or is there a time you think there's best to do it? I usually do it in the morning. James, okay. I think tends to do it just midday when he's kind of finished his work and uses it as a pause to before he starts the rest of his day. How long do you tend to, is it like a five minutes, 10 minutes, half an hour? Yeah, there's, there's a couple options. So it starts out at around three minutes, I think the first ones. Um, and then you walk through, I think there's about 25 that you're supposed to do every day for 25 days. And I think it ramps up sort of from about three minutes to maybe eight minutes. So it's really like, it's not very impactful. It's pretty easy to start doing. It doesn't feel yeah. like you're spending a lot of time, but then there's also a bunch of optional meditations and like thought listening things you can do that are a little bit longer. Cool. Yeah, I know. I can't remember the, for the I think it was maybe Calm. Is that an app? I think yeah, Calm yeah. is one. I think that's yeah. the one I used for a short period of time. I was doing it in the morning, like uh, three minutes right in the morning. And I, the the nice thing with that is it would like have gamification of habit building because it would kind of be like oh you've right. done it however many days in a row so i guess that almost <laughs> links to everything yeah, you're talking absolutely. about the, the waking up app does that too and it makes it does make you feel it's a self-efficacy thing like ah, i've done it three three days in a row I'm, I'm on a roll i need to it's a reminder that i need to get back into it because i i gave it up and I, I don't know why i guess it's one of those yeah. things like i don't know a supplement or something you just you don't necessarily see what it's doing it but it's more right. than likely it's a helping very slow increase yeah yeah yeah. I, yeah I fell off of it when we moved to montana just because my earlier habit had been to get up in the morning and i would just go for a walk just around the block and do one mindfulness session and come home and then when we got here we just we got puppies it's winter came it started snowing and i've just now been getting back on it so i guess it's I was thinking maybe I can be mindful when I'm walking the dog, but I'm not sure I can when I'm doing that because of uh, the the complications of sometimes walking a dog, I guess. It depends yeah, where you're doing yeah. it. <laughs> it's a full-time job. So I, I actually didn't get any deeper into the book. I didn't get to self-monitoring, uh, kind of keep your eye okay. on the prize and these other chapters, which I'm excited to get into because like I said, it, it's been really interesting. Of those chapters, which one of them or of all the chapters, is there any one that kind of is a particular favorite to yours? Yeah, I think the the idea of keeping your eye on your behavior over the outcomes is a really important one. I think that people tend to like just to give a weight loss example, you know, they keep their eye on the scale and they we all know the scale goes up and down, but that doesn't stop us from being mad when it goes up the third day we're on our diet. You know, even though we're well aware that it could be water noise or what have you, um, especially when you're dealing with clients too, who are new and you're trying to explain this up and down, but they're so focused on the scale number when really what they should be focused on is their behavior. And the more they can make their behavior fit their ideal, the more likely that outcome they want will be to happen. So behavior is also the only aspect you can really directly control in order to promote an outcome. So 
making a behavior goal of what you're going to do, you know, how much protein you're going to eat, when you're going to eat, things like that. And then celebrating your adherence to that is really the way to go in terms of keeping yourself motivated, developing self-efficacy, and ultimately getting to that prize of that outcome success. Yeah, I guess, is that essentially like being process orientated versus like outcome orientated? Yeah, Yeah. I know. Sorry, go on. Uh, it's even more important for your your newer clients or people who are newer, or even you, you might be an expert in fitness, but getting into a different arena that you're unfamiliar with, really focusing on the the behavior and the process and the learning is more important than focusing on the outcome. If you're more advanced in an arena, you can focus on the outcome a little more with less detriment, okay. but being uh, aware of your behavior and working on that is also important when you're advanced. I know it makes me think of specifically like contest prep in the last like couple of months. And if you right. focus too much on like, I don't know, having shredded glutes and like looking a certain way and being on stage, you just drive yourself up the wall. And I'm always right. like, focus on today, tick like the boxes I need do to achieve all today. The things I'm supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Otherwise, yeah, it becomes very overwhelming for such like yeah. a, I guess it's a somewhat of a, I guess it's not that long term, like a medium term potentially goal. Yeah. Uh, so, and then, Oh, something I, I did want to dig into was I had and I wanted to skip ahead to this chapter but I haven't I'm going to read it through <laughs> was the role of the coach in all of these uh, things yeah. I know yeah. I, I just cheekily looked at it and there was a bit about um, motivational interviewing which I think mm-hmm. is really really interesting so I'd love to hear more about kind of what's in that chapter yeah absolutely and I think we touched on this a little bit earlier but the idea is basically to to not impose your values on your clients right So as we talked about having these intrinsic, these internally motivated goals, these things that a person is passionate about themselves, um, is really important for success. So if you try to impose what you're passionate about, what you value on your client, they're probably not going to be successful. So the sort of trick is to get out of them what they actually value and are passionate about. And sometimes that can be difficult because people might say, like, I'm passionate about looking like this Instagram model that I sent to you, like make me look like this, when maybe they're actually more passionate about other things, like spending time with friends and family and sort of getting to the heart of their values and their preferences before making a goal and a plan for them is really important. And I think it's something a lot of coaches tend to skip because they know it works for them, right? And they want to, they want to, it's a, it's a kind intention, right? They want to give that to their client. But what's more valuable is actually to figure out what your client wants and has internal motivations for. Absolutely. And then I, I know um, the, another book, I don't know if you've read it. I imagine you might have. It's a book I own and I, I started reading, but I've, I've, I have so many things uh, to read and I'm kind of <laughs> making sure I pick uh, the right ones and prioritizing. But it's Atomic Habits by James Clear. Oh, yeah. Have you I read that? I actually haven't read it okay. because when I was writing my book, uh, there were a couple of habit books that came out when I was in the process of writing. Oh, and okay, yeah. I just didn't want to bias any of my writing. I wanted to base it all on the evidence and just read the the literature before I formed any opinions or wrote my book. So I told myself when I finished my book, I could read those, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Amazing. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's you don't want to bias yourself or make you f- yourself feel like you've don't know uh like taken some of their ideas and right, ended exactly. up putting it into yours somehow because that i can see how that subconsciously can sometimes happen i yeah, find myself saying something <laughs> yeah uh but um i was going to ask if you what was 
the maybe the difference um i haven't dug into his enough to to say but i was very impressed by like just the number of references behind every single uh chapter and being able to have those resources is nice as just someone who's interested in the science and if you want to dig into a particular area or one of the studies you mentioned it's it's really nice to be able to do that yeah yeah i wanted it to be a very evidence-based book so i really wanted to develop that's part of why i didn't read those other books as well i wanted to sort of just pull opinions out of like the broad consensus of the literature. Hi guys, Steve here. Just wanted to take a moment of your time to remind you of our online coaching service. At Revive Stronger, we pride ourselves on providing personalized service that will take your physique and knowledge to the next level. If you're interested, check the description and sign up. And I'm interested, Mel, when you're kind of working with clients, is there anything you've learned through writing the book or any kind of practical things within the book i know within the book there's like uh i guess uh, things to fill out and kind of uh, uh-huh. forms and things for the for the yeah, person worksheets. reading worksheets yeah. do, you, do you use any of that with clients are there anything you've tried implementing with good success yeah I, I have used that with a few clients in particular some clients who are sort of more or had more weight that they wanted to lose but sort of had more entrenched eating habits to deal with. Um, So I had a lot of them work on uh, logging, you know, okay, you're having trouble with binge eating, right? Let's start writing down every time you have a binge session, write down what came before it. How did you feel? Was it triggered by stress or boredom or a particular emotion? What's triggering this? How long does it last? Do you binge eat for the entire day? Is it one meal? Is it a week? How does that happen? How intense and uncontrolled does it feel like rated on a scale of one to 10? And then as we track that, you get an idea of, first of all, why the person is leaning towards that. And second of all, how often it's happening. So then you can ask them to do something like, okay, next time, you know, let's say it's emotional stress that triggers these. The next time something emotionally stressful happens, usually you binge for a whole day. Let's see if you can stop the binge in the afternoon. And just incrementally um, had them, a couple of clients move back from that to the point where they weren't really binge eating anymore. And then once they got to that point, I was like, okay, now we can start the diet. Now you have sort of a more healthy relationship with food, a handle on how your emotions impact your eating compulsions, and we can start working on a more structured weight loss diet. I, I love that because I imagine you've come to that through different means but jake if you do you know jake lenarden from break binge eating yes i I recommend his his page to everyone who talks about binge eating he's great Awesome. I don't know if you've, you may have seen it, but he is a, I think it's a free resource on his website because I was looking into it because I had a couple of clients having uh-huh. a similar, and he has a, a similar kind of, he talks about it being like a detective and he has a similar breakdown of a worksheet oh, nice. where you fill things out. So the fact that you've both kind of come to this, uh, for like, <laughs> yeah, and both trying to help people is awesome. Website. I'll have to check it out. I send people to his Instagram page all the time because he just posts like such easily yeah. digestible breakdowns that, that people can really absorb. And I think use. cool. I'll have to check that out. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, when you were talking me through it, I was like, oh, this sounds just like the one I've, because I've, nice. I've used a very similar process with clients. So you kind of, yeah, you try and kind of identify habits and behaviors that are leading to the binge because right. that's kind of, like you said, that's the habit that you're trying to break and you're trying to break right. that kind of stimulus response. Yeah. Uh, so, and I guess- That's I, great. That's really satisfying that he came through a bet. similar process because he actually researches binge eating. Like yeah. I just read some of the research. He actually does it. So. Uh, and I guess mindfulness probably helps with those sort of things, like being Absolutely. more aware of yeah. 
when you're eating sitting down enjoying the food that's kind of a kind of a mindfulness strategy as well i assume right and part of mindfulness is sort of learning to observe your emotions and responses with less emotion and that can be really helpful as well sort of taking the emotionality out of it and on that note there's another really silly tactic that seems to work um if you're having emotional if you're having some of these habits in response to emotional stress or emotion overly emotional reactions you can start talking to yourself in the third person about what the logical response is. I mean, it sounds super cheesy, but it seems to be very effective to say like, Mel, let's think about what the appropriate reaction to this is. Do you need to be this sad about this? Do you need to be this offended? Let's work it out. And uh, that seems to help a lot with that. I really like that because I know like it's a very well-known thing. And I have also had clients where an emotional response will be they just go to food because that's what right. kind of calms yeah. them and that's where they get I guess that serotonin and stuff and they've really right. struggled to get through that so yeah using the strategy of kind of like rationally break like having like I don't know almost like you have your coach there talking to you trying to have right, that exactly. kind of response I think that's I think that's how it ends up impacting because the voice in your head when you speak to yourself in the third person feels like an additional helper and you feel have like this internal social support <laughs> absolutely awesome i i have no other specific questions about the book i don't know if you have anything else you kind of want to let the listeners know about it i know it's available on renaissance periodization they can pick it up over there if they're interested i'll have that link below is there anything else like absolutely. that you would want the listeners to know about the book yeah so there's probably not time in a podcast to go over the the chapter on behavior change strategies but i think knowing that there's not just one or two strategies there's hundreds and i probably go over 50 of the biggest ones um for changing your behavior and not every strategy works for every person so you really have to start playing with all these different strategies and see what helps you trick yourself into doing what you want right so there's a, a huge that was for me very um sort of motivating to know that there are so many options and maybe the couple of behavior change things i tried before that they didn't work didn't isn't the end of the world there's other options um and then also, I just think like people should know that this stuff, it's not easy. We're limited by our own human hardware, right? Our brains build habits for a reason. They're strongly ingrained. No one changes overnight. So there's nothing wrong with you if you can't break a habit immediately. It's a very time-consuming skill development. And it's important to know that and not feel guilt when you don't change right away. That's my yeah, I, I like final that. words. <laughs> and uh if people want to listen to because even in the beginning of the book you go through all of the kind of what like the the literature behind habits and where it all came from and yeah neuroscience kind of, and psychology like yeah. that was super interesting i know we touched on it a bit in the last podcast as well but i think um, definitely if people are interested they, they should check it out because i think for a coach or just a person into this like you can just help yourself because like i mean like the, the saying goes habits can make or break you and you are like a, a sum of your habits essentially so Absolutely, if you can yeah. find a way of kind of yeah different strategies to try and improve those or break down negative ones i think it's like an unbeatable resource for that so i really appreciate it and i'm looking forward to reading more i have you for a bit more time mel and yeah. i did this with james at the start of when i interviewed him last <laughs> time and people enjoy actually just hearing what you're up to so uh -huh. i don't know if uh you have like do you have any goals in the meantime i know you've been you train um with your martial arts and uh, other various aspects what what's happening in mel's world at the moment yeah i've actually taken jujitsu down a notch now that we've moved to montana um i've switched to some very montana goals i bought a mule and nice. I'm learning, <laughs> learning all about how to train equines and, you know, 
what the names of different parts of saddles are. So that's definitely one wow. of the goals I'm working on is I have specific days and times of the week that I go see my mule and work on training him and he works on training me. So that's been really fun. We've been kind of learning about living in the woods out here, like how to dry wood and chop wood and things like that. So those are, those are sort of the new things in my life now is becoming a, a country woman. <laughs> Do you have, are you, you train from home still or are you, do you train like where James trains? Oh, lifting you mean? Yeah. 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 We have a garage gym, which has been, uh, that's been a transition for me growing up in Southern California where the coldest winter day was 40 Fahrenheit. Right. Uh, now sometimes the garage is 15 Fahrenheit. So it's been, it's been an interesting thing, but that's definitely been a challenge is con- convincing myself to continue my lifting schedule yeah. when I know I'm going out into that freezing cold garage, but so far so good. I guess the good news is as you guys, particularly at Renaissance Periodization, talk about how comfortable maintenance can be, like you can certainly maintain with very little. So right, uh, yeah. I guess that's at least a plus there. And then do you have <laughs> any other like future projects? Are you working on any other future books or anything? Or um, There's some a couple books sort of in the works, but maybe not be, might not be out this year. I'm not sure. We're working on a diet psychology book and a book on weight maintenance, post, post-diet weight maintenance. Cool. Um, yeah, there's... Uh, there's a training app in the works. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that. I don't know when it's coming out, but that should I'm be sure really Mike, cool. I'm <laughs> sure Mike's probably teased about it Mike's at some stage. <laughs> I feel like that's something I kind of knew was happening without yeah, you yeah. saying anything. So I'm sure the listeners are kind of thinking that, that that's probably in the pipeline. I think pipeline. I'm okay to say it as long as I don't give any date release promises. <laughs> awesome. No, that sounds really, really exciting. And I don't think I actually ever asked, how long were you working on this specific book? How long did that take you in terms of years? So I, I, I wrote for about a year and a half, but I read for about two and a half years. Wow. Yeah. These, I guess that's what it takes to put together <laughs> such a, like uh, a, a well-written and well-rounded book and well-referenced as well. Cause Thank I you. Get, yeah, that's, that's the thing that I always think sets apart like the Renaissance periodization, like books with all the references. So, you know, kind of, you can check out the evidence rather than yeah. just, you pick up a book off like the library shelf about habits. And I mean, how much right. of it is just based off their own experience, which might be fine, but it's always nice right. to have the I studies to there. Like I have a PhD, listen to me, right? Yeah. There's crazy people who have PhDs. I know from being in a PhD program. So having, <laughs> having the references and having people be able to, to look into it for themselves, I think is a really important part of being a, a scientist with integrity. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Mel, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I know people thank are going to want to learn me. more kind of where they can kind of keep up with you. I know you're, you're posting on Instagram uh, quite regularly with uh, good information at regressive underlo- underscore underload, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Where did that name come from, by the way? Uh, so it was actually uh, Ryan Short, who's one of the fitness people we met in Australia. I know Ryan. Yep. Yeah. He he sent me like this joke picture. It was I forget. It was a kid who had some interesting disorder where he was really jacked when he was young. And then later in life, he just didn't lift. And I guess that went away. And he he said, ha ha, regressive underload. <laughs> and I just thought it was such a funny play on progressive overload that I was like, you know what? That's that's my IG handle. <laughs> that's great. Was that, that might have been like the, I know there was like that Tarzan, Tarzan kid who like, he got Maybe trained by his dad it, when he yeah. was younger and then he kind of gave it up when he was older. Anyway, um, Mel, this has been great. I think 
honestly, like like we said before, like habits are such a big deal. I think the book's going to be really helpful to a lot of people. Hopefully this chat has kind of brought them into at least looking into it a bit further and potentially picking it up. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for coming on and we'll talk to you thank soon, you so guys. Thank you for having me. So I'm Steve Hall, founder of Revive Stronger and a coach of Revive Stronger. My name is Pascal Floor. I'm the co-owner of Revive Stronger and also a coach, of course. Revive Stronger has probably been going solidly for three years, probably roughly about three years. Revive Stronger, to me, it is becoming kind of my child, my foster child. It's the gathering and getting together of like-minded people. We've been expanding the coaching team, which is helping us help more people. Uh, but each coach can only help a certain number of people. Right now, it's all over the place. We have YouTube, we have Facebook, we have Instagram, but there isn't that community aspect behind that. And so the next step for us is developing a membership site. So basically, we want to create a family and a community that is then benefiting from another. A really cool community for people within our little niche is going to be a website. They will get early access to our podcast. You can access us, ask us questions, the community aspect. We have a forum there. You can ask questions, but also you can, you can lock your journey. There's also going to be courses on there, courses, presentations on different topics. Discount of past seminar footage. We will log our journey as well. We'll start vlogging. We're going to have documentaries, our entire athletic journey. Furthermore, they get access to an exercise video library. The exercises that we love for hypertrophy and maximizing hypertrophy, we're going to go through those in depth, telling you how to execute them. We kept them concise and also mobile friendly so that you can watch them in between your sets. I'm super excited to grow this community. The amount of value that we're going to be delivering is huge. And I'd love you to be part of it. You will get so much out of that. I'll see you inside.